Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. This is Mickey. You are listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Professor Stephen Kinane all about his research on the brain. So his early research looking at omega threes. What else is important regarding nutrients for the brain? The importance of ketones as a fuel source, and what we need to think about as we age for our brain. We also dive into his research on medium-chain triglycerides and their usefulness in preventing cognitive decline and the potential application of these for neurological conditions such as Alzheimer's. It was such a great conversation and he was so generous with his time and his knowledge in and around the brain and ageing because let's face it, this is one thing that we really need to consider as we get older and as we want to maintain our independence and our clarity and focus and our ability to think, right? So Professor Stephen Kunane, he is a metabolic physiologist at the University of Sherbrooke in Sherbrooke, Quebec. He is the author of five books, including Survival of the Fattest, which was published in 2005, and Human Brain Evolution, The Influence of Fresh and Coastal Food Resources, which was published in 2010. He earned his PhD in physiology at McGill University back in 1980 and did postdoctoral research on nutrition and brain development in Scotland, London and Nova Scotia. And his research since then at University of Toronto focused on the omega-3 fatty acids and brain development in human health and also looking at the relationship between ketones and a high-fat ketogenic diet on brain development. And we touch on that in this conversation too. In 2003, Professor Kunane was awarded a senior Canada Research Chair at the Research Centre on Ageing and became a full professor at the University of Sherbrooke. He has published more than 280 peer-reviewed research papers and was elected to the French National Academy of Medicine in 2009. And I've included a link to Professor Cunane's ResearchGate, which details out all of his research studies, in the show notes. Before we get into the conversation, though, I'd just like to remind you that the best way for you to support the podcast is to please subscribe in your podcast platform and tell your mates about Wikipedia so more people can get access to the information. You could also jump over to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and sign up to the recipe portal access, where for 12 bucks a month, you get access to a regularly updated recipe library to my weekly email, the ability for me to answer your nutrition-related questions in our in-app messaging system, and become a member of the Real Food Nutrition community where I have regular lives and Q&A forums. That's over on mickeywillardin.com. For now, though, grab a pen and take notes on this fascinating conversation that I had with Professor Stephen Kinane. 
Stephen, thank you so much for taking time with me this afternoon to chat about your research in the brain, of which as I get older, I'm getting more and more interested in, possibly because I keep seeing like Sudoku and Wordle on Twitter and thinking I should probably do something to um, uh, something a little bit different and out of my usual sphere for my uh, brain health. Um, can we start with a little bit of your background? So how did you get interested in studying the brain? Oh boy, I'm not sure really. Um, probably uh, during my postdoc, during my PhD, I did all kinds of things and uh, had no focus whatsoever. How I actually got my PhD is still a mystery to me. But um, still, uh, when I went uh, and started my postdoc in the UK, um, I, something attracted me towards uh, working a little bit more on the brain. Probably the, the second person that I worked with in, in, in England, who was uh, Michael Crawford in London, who was one of the pioneers in the area of omega-3 fatty acids and brain development. Mm. And I admired his work. And I, that probably is, is the main reason I ended up sticking to that area. But it was, it was brain development. It wasn't brain aging initially that, uh, that, uh, that I started working on it. But it, it was in the context of looking at brain development that I became interested in ketones. Yeah. Can we um, have a little chat about just your um, earlier research in that human brain development, because as I understand it, your concept that humans sort of evolved living sort of in the marine coastline and we utilized the nutrients available from that, and that was part of that brain development story. Is that right? Yeah. So there's there's been a group of people, and I would say it was greatly inspired again by Michael Crawford, um, who've been interested in omega-3 fatty acids, the, the high concentration of omega-3 fatty acids in the brain. The fact that the human brain is, is such a high-performing brain compared to all the other mammals um, and, and the importance of omega-3s for brain function led him to sort of say, well, they must have been important uh, in our brain evolution. Yeah. And, and he realized as well that DHA alone, the main omega-3 fatty acid in the brain, would not have been able to drive human brain uh, evolution by itself. Mm. One nutrient was important, but it was in fact a cluster of nutrients that were important. And what was the best source of these, what we end up calling brain selective nutrients, including iron, iodine in particular, and DHA and some others, what was the best source of these nutrients? If you're going to grow the brain, if you're going to expand the brain by threefold compared to the the biggest primate brain, which is the chimpanzee brain, you've got to supply more of the building blocks, the ingredients that are necessary to make that brain function. So what's the best way to get them? It wasn't on the savannas trying to chase down a gazelle or eating, scavenging the remains of, of one that was been killed by, by a lion or something. It was, uh, it, where, where are these nutrients? They're on the shorelines. They're in the shellfish. They're in the, the fish and uh, frogs and some of the aquatic plants. That's where you get the iodine. And, I, and, and why we talk about these nutrients, DHA is important, but the two most limiting nutrients for our health today still are iodine and iron. Yeah. The, most wide-ranging deficiency of any nutrients in the world today are both for iron and iodine still, even though we've had iodine supplementation for over 100 years now. Mm. So how did we avoid that obstacle to brain function? Because iodine is critically important for brain development. Why didn't that stop brain evolution two million years ago? Because we had a source, a very good source of iodine. 
we were consuming it on a regular basis. And and the fossil record shows that we're eating a lot of, sh- of fish and shellfish. Yeah. So that's that's the nutrient side of it. But I said to Michael, you know, the brain is bigger and it takes a lot of energy to run it. it it's almost a tw- 25% of our, of our energy consumption per day is going to fuel the brain. Mm. And in an infant, it's not 25%, it's 75%. Yeah. That's the number. I'm not... I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, yeah. So an, an infant is not even a functional entity, as it were, at birth, in humans, compared to other mammals or even other species. So the energy is is another element that we have to give some some consideration to. You 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 get the nutrient supply from the marine food chain, okay? Mm-hmm. So where where's the nutrients coming from? Uh, sorry, where's the energy coming from? And in reading on this and working on it and stumbling over some uh, some of the literature, I realized that ketones were really important for brain energy metabolism in newborns. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, maybe they were important for our brain expansion then as well. Mm-hmm. And if they were, where where were they coming from? How do you just generate ketones? Well, we had fat babies. We're the only species with fat babies. Where do ketones come from? They come from fatty acids in our fat supply, either fat uh, stores, either in the diet or in our fat stores. And they come from medium chain triglycerides, which are in mother's milk. Yeah, yeah. So that that makes a credible source of this additional energy supply that complements glucose and allows the brain some latitude to expand if it gets the nutrients it needs. If you're born prematurely or with low birth weight, you don't have the fat supplies and you have a much higher risk of neurodevelopmental delay. Yeah. So, you know, that's not proof of anything, but it fits and it it makes sense that the energy, we have a a credible source of of where the energy is going to come from. And and we have a need for it. And those ketones are doing things beyond supplying energy, which we could maybe talk about at some point. So that, that's what sort of cross-fed between brain development and brain evolution. And the two seem to be on the same, seem to be linked, obviously. Stephen, just in your opinion, like we, you've got iron, iodine, zinc, DHA, copper, selenium, all of these nutrients which are super important for the brain. And then you've got this modern diet, like, and I'm just really interested to get your um, thoughts on the, I, don't, I suppose, the potential for like proper brain development now when many of those nutrients are just not as available or not as sort of sought out in the diets that we sort of eat today. I don't know. I wonder what impact that has on the, the developing brains of children these days, to be honest. Generally speaking, it, it depends on, on, on basically on your socioeconomic situation, mm. and if 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 you're reasonably well off, then there should be no limitations to getting enough zinc, copper, selenium, usually iron. Uh, iron's controversial because the best sources are meat, and meat is very political these days. Yes. Uh, and whether we can find vegetarian sources of iron that that can match what you can get from meat, that's I think is very debatable, but. If we leave the politics out of it for now, um, I, I think that uh, eating an omnivorous diet, most people are going to be okay most of the time. Yeah. If it's it's in situations where you're living on the margins of society and, and in certain areas in Africa, for instance, where the, the predominant food supply 
the foods are, are foods like, like cassava, mm. millet, which is not only a poor source of nutrients, but it's also got some anti-nutrients called goiterogens, which will bind to the iodine and mm. block the, the, the low amount of iodine that is in the food supply. Mm. So if you're limited to some very uh, specific basic um, foods like this, and that's the main source of, of your nutrition, then the, the, those nutrients will become limiting for brain development, and there will be an impact probably uh, on the development of those children and the functioning of, of, of them as a, adults. Yeah, well, interesting. You, um, in New Zealand, we've had low iodine status in our soil, and so therefore iodized salt came in. But actually, I think maybe even sort of 15 years ago, they discovered that many people were actually, or many children were iodine deficient when they last did the nutrition survey uh, because so many people had moved away from using the iodized salt and were starting to use like the more fancy sort of rock salt and and things like that. So... um, I think it's it's interesting that while of course these are much more problematic in uh, potentially like developing countries or something, I think there's malnutrition in the sort of modern uh, or in the developed countries as well that you, people probably yeah. don't even think about. Well, there's definitely subclinical iodine deficiency in in the modern countries as well, and it's because of the fear of salt. Most of the iodine we're getting from, if you're not eating fish, is coming from salt. And if you're a salt-sensitive person, as far as blood pressure is concerned, then you're limiting salt. Yeah. And you're limiting, uh, not not conscientiously, but you're limiting iodine as well. If you're not eating meat, then you're also limiting uh, iodine as well. Yeah. If you're eating a lot of vegetables, there's you get the anti-nutrient effects. It can affect the supply of uh, phytate, for instance, will affect the availability of, of zinc. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can have a better nutrition if you're a vegetarian or not a meat eater or a fish eater. It's possible. Yeah. But you have to be quite uh, tuned into the sources, the right sources. You can eat al- al- algae. Algae, for instance, are a great source of iodine. But you need to know that. Yeah. Uh, and you need to accept the limits uh, that a lot of the, the seeds and beans we eat have got um, phytates and um, they even have cyanide in them, in fact, and naturally uh, occurring. Uh, so, you know, there, there's two sides to every diet and, and you need to be conscious of the pros and cons. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, so in your research, as you were looking at those sort of cluster of nutrients for brain development, but also how the brain got the fuel and, and you sort of thought, hang on, like ketones are a major sort of source of this. What was the thinking back then when you were looking at the research, sort of the general mainstream thinking, if you like, over that glucose, ketones, and the uh, the preferred fuel source? Was there much interest in it at the time or much other research going on? Zero. 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 Nobody, <laughs> nobody's ever been interested in it since the time that um... – that Hans Krebs did some of the initial groundbreaking pioneering work in, in the 60s. Uh, I had to dig through the dusty archives in the basement uh, of the university to find these papers, and um, it's basically gone completely off the radar. So it's, it's a lost field, if you will, and um, I, I was struck by it. The only reason I guess I got stuck on it is that I'd heard about the ketogenic diet, which is a very high-fat diet, for epilepsy, control of, of uh, intractable epilepsy, so epilepsy that doesn't respond to drugs. And I was struck by this and thinking, you know, that's the craziest thing I've, I've heard. 
and and but I was also becoming interested in the physiological role of ketones at the same time. So I thought, let's let's just have a look at this, and um, that's how I got interested in in the therapeutic implications of ketones and the biology, the physiology behind it. Mm. But um, very few people uh, are working on this, to my knowledge, and um, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And when you were looking at it, was there pushback on the idea of that they could even be important because like, no one had done the research? Because, of course, you mentioned the ketogenic diet and it's a high fat and that's even controversial sort of now. But back in sort of earlier, like in the 80s or whatever, we were through this real low fat phase also. That pushback from, especially from the medical community, has always been there. Yeah. And and the thing that kept me uh, interested and focused and encouraged, I guess, was that there was a community and there still is a community of people that are interested in the ketogenic diet initially for epilepsy. Mm. And that, you know, that's a hundred year old treatment now. So it's been an orphan treatment for many, many years. But into the 80s and 90s, uh, especially with the aid, of, I guess, of the Internet and getting people to talk to each other more easily and organizing conferences uh, on this topic, that it started to gain some momentum. Uh, and that was a, a lifeline for many of us to feel connected to the science, the clinical benefit, and to to explore, uh, you know, models. How do we how do we study epilepsy in animals? And trying, to, I've tried over ten years to to study epilepsy with a ketogenic diet in animals, and it was very unsuccessful. It was very hard to get reproducible results. And I found other people were having the same struggles and. We really focused on how can we do this in children. So, so what what amount of research can you do in a five year old or a ten year old, in terms of blood sampling and putting them in a in a in an imager or a scanner of some sort? It's ethically challenging. It's technically challenging. You need lots of money to do this sort of work, and so there were many many obstacles. But other people were sort of confronting those obstacles, and 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 the the clinical results still look reasonably positive. And and I spoke to the parent groups that were involved. And once they found about someone new that was coming uh, into their community, they would get together and organize evenings so that the parents could learn how to make the recipes for ketogenic diets and, and how they could determine, even without measuring ketones, uh, that the benefits were occurring in their children. And, and that was all the encouragement I needed to keep sort of pushing to try and understand what was going on. Yeah. Stephen, what is the role of the ketones in the brain? Like I've heard you describe them as being both anabolic and catabolic. So catabolic is we use ketones for energy, but what are the other benefits that ketones have for the brain? So I hope I'm using those terms correctly, but when we say catabolic, it means that the ketones are being degraded. They're being catabolized yeah. to, to make the brain's energy currency, which is called ATP, like glucose. Like fatty acids in some in some of our in our muscle and in our heart, for instance. So the ketones are a fuel in that sense; they're being catabolized. Mm. But I also learned from the older literature from the 1970s and 80s, and from our own research, that ketones were also contributing to building the brain, not just fueling it, but actually building the fats in the brain in the white, what's called the white matter, which is the kind of the myelin sheath the insulating sheath around the axons, the, the, around the nerves, that, that keeps the message, gets the message from A to B. Mm -hmm. And that, that insulation is basically very lipid-rich. And a lot of, of those lipids, the carbon in those lipids, is made from ketones. Yeah. 
So to me, that's an anabolic process, like using an amino acid to build a protein to make your muscle. It's the same thing. So amino acids can be anabolic and catabolic. They can be used to make glucose and fuel the body. That's a a catabolic process. So they're, they're both glucose is anabolic and catabolic as well. And they, they have the many, many molecules have these dual roles uh, in, in the body. Yeah, because I often hear people talk about, I mean, for whatever reason, there's schools of thought that you know, glucose is the primary fuel source for the, for the brain and it'll preferentially use that. Um, it'll only turn to ketones in, a, in sort of times of starvation. But is that sort of congruent with what you understand or, or do you understand it differently? I definitely understand it differently. I understand why people put it that way, uh, because for a long time, uh, it's been known that the brain is using a lot of glucose per day, per every day. Uh, it was also known since the 60s that when you, in starvation, there was some other fuel was being able to use, the brain was able to use, but they didn't know until uh, George Cahill's group in, at Harvard in 1967 demonstrated that the this unknown fuel was in fact ketones. Yeah. And it was studied in people that were on a controlled starvation for 40 days. Yeah. So it, it's obvious that people would associate the use of ketones with the state of starvation. I'm, I'm not surprised that that's the case. And, and that they would also think that it's the alternative, the backup fuel, and only use ketones when the brain is starving. Mm. But uh, in fact, if you give the, the brain the chance to use both, it will use ketones and suppress the use of glucose in a healthy person on a ketogenic diet. Yeah, we published this. Some Danish researchers have published this. So to me, if the ketones are able to cons- help you conserve glucose, spare glucose, then the ketones are in fact the preferred fuel. Yeah. Now, the fact that you don't have them in any abundance unless you're starving creates a situation where they're always basically low, and therefore it's very hard to assess their contribution to the brain's energy metabolism if the levels are always around five, 3 to 5% of, the, of what the brain is burning on a regular basis, unless you've been starved for at least a week. But if you're on a ketogenic diet, you can, you can show that the ketones are being used very, very readily and will actually suppress glucose uptake, which means you're conserving the glucose for other things and other organs, perhaps for red cell metabolism and, and, and other purposes. So there's a complementarity there that I think is, is it's not just a subtle difference. It's, it's actually a critical role because we've been afraid of ketones for many years. The medical community associates them with un, 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 uncontrolled diabetes, Yeah, which is true. Yeah. It's, it, that's an extreme situation. But the infant is normally in ketosis, is normally burning ketones mm. uh, on a regular basis, day in, day out. It's not a question of being mistreated or uh, underfed or uh, in any sort of disease situation. It's a normal situation. So I think we need that context to see the physiology of ketones and, and not just think of them as an alternative fuel uh, during starvation. Yeah. When I started looking into the ketogenic diet and would have conversations with my nutrition friends, and they would talk about ketogenesis and ketoacidosis like they were the same thing. And and that's you know, and that it was very dangerous. And I 
and even, you know, a couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with a client who fed better on a lower carb approach because she had gestational diabetes. And the advice that she had received from her sort of health professionals was don't go too low carb because there is that, you know, you might get into ketosis and that's not a good thing for your baby so yes, this was post um having the baby so just these sort of myths around ketones if you like that it's very difficult to um uh they stay around for a while you know it's they can't just be sort of stamped out in you know a few months or a few even a few years it seems the the myth the myths are, are well it's part of the dogma i suppose and it to me it's it's linked to this paranoia about fats in the diet, which goes back to the 60s. And um, I, to me, that's the link. But I, And so anything that's associated with dietary fat is supposed to make you fat, supposed to be a cardiovascular risk. Uh, and it doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. And there are a lot of people now, and there's a lot of published research on the ketogenic diet that shows that the cardiovascular risks, it may raise LDL cholesterol, but in fact, cardiovascular risks are not elevated. Insulin sensitivity is improved. It's, it's, it's really um, almost hypocritical of people who are worried about ketones being up a little bit. They don't seem to be worried about glucose being up a little bit constantly. Yeah. It's much more of a problem for your body mm. to have this mildly elevated, to be pre-diabetic. Yeah. Uh, your doctor will say, oh, well, we'll put you on metformin uh, or some other treatment and we'll manage it. But in fact, um, it doesn't, in fact, help you uh, control your diabetes any better. Um, and so it's something that we've, we can accept for some reason. And yet when the ketones are up a little bit, uh, there's all sorts of people get febrile and, and, and worried uh, about it. And it, it's a bit disproportionate. It's, it's because of a belief system without actually looking at the data. Yeah. And um, a lot of the time we don't want to look at the data because we've already made up our minds about what's good and what's bad. And, and we're stick. it's a bit religious, really, uh, in, in the way we approach this type of topic. And it feels like with people who study in this area, for some of them, they've built their careers around the idea that, you know, saturated fat causes heart disease. So it's a, it's a it's hard to sort of look back and go, actually, that's not correct. And I know that for some people in the nutrition space, that's probably one of the reasons why they've sort of hold quite steady on that belief system without sort of looking at the data. But you're talking about it quite dispassionately, like, you know, this is just what the data shows. And I feel like there should well, need to be more I'm not of that. very dispassionate about it, but I've ha I had a conversion uh, about this uh, in the mid-90s when I heard about, as I, as I mentioned earlier, about the ketogenic diet for epilepsy. And I thought that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, but if, if I hadn't been working on ketones at the time and brain development, I don't think I would have paid it any attention whatsoever. And I thought, if it's helping these kids, we should look into this. Yeah. And I started to get interested. And I realized that we just didn't, really understand what was happening. And so I, I've had a conversion on that level, and I've had a, a couple of such conversions in, in my career, and, and I've never regretted sort of changing sides, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and so dogma, dogma gets in the way um, of, of good science sometimes, and it's something we have to deal with in, in most fields, actually, I think. In most uh, sort of health-related fields, uh, there's there's dogma that, that people get frustrated about, but there you go. Yeah, and probably it's just much more 
in the public sphere, the dogma, because we all eat, you know, nutrition is sort of everyone's business and everyone has an opinion, whereas in other sort of fields of science, there might be this thing sort of going on in, um, I don't know, like uh, you know, rocket science or, you know, biology, but people don't really, you know, that's not part of our everyday life. Maybe that's part of it. Well, in rocket science, if your rocket burns out after five minutes, then then you you, you know you've got to reinvent it, right? And it's pretty yeah. obvious that you've made a mistake. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, people can build, as you say, can build a career around a, a perspective, uh, a health perspective, whether it's saturated fat or what it is, um, and um, they can say, look at the literature that supports what I'm doing, mm. um, and and they don't that you know that's so that's their perspective, and yeah, but I don't think it. it in reality, the ketogenic diet is now being used in conditions where we, they, it should be killing people, like type 2 diabetes, like weight loss. I, I think in North America, more people are on the ketogenic diet for weight loss than probably any other uh, approach. And that might be true globally. But when you go to the keto conference, uh, like the uh, Meta, uh, Metabolic Health Summit, uh, most of the people that are in, interested in it are interested in weight loss. How could that be if this was actually um, making their situation worse and, and creating cardiovascular risk. Yeah, it, you know it doesn't stand the test of, of of time. Yeah, and interesting. You mentioned the um, obviously the um, therapeutic basis for the ketogenic diet in epilepsy, and I was really surprised to hear. I think it was Eric Koss. I think that's Kosov. Yeah, Kosov. Thank you. Um, and he was describing. I think it was him. Was might might have been Chris Palmer actually describing the therapeutic impact of an infant going on a ketogenic diet, and they only had to be on a ketogenic diet for six months. And something about the ketones almost reset the brain or change those yeah. patterns. Because as I had no idea that that was the sort of powerful impact of it because I thought that for a condition of epilepsy if you if you were on a ketogenic diet then you you know then that was you for the rest of your life but like do you understand what's going on do we understand the mechanism there Stephen we being science and and I I've heard that I I think I believe it's true I think there's a, a developmental reset a reprogramming of processes that are still you know, in, a, in a, an infant, you, you mentioned an infant of six months old. I think it's it's true go, going on to two, three, four, five years old. But the later you, you wait, the harder it is to reprogram. Yeah. Um, I think there was a lot of concern about trying a ketogenic diet in an infant under two years old for a long time. Um, but uh, I guess he, he's obviously, uh, he's a pediatrician, he's a neurologist at least, and, um, and, and he's got experience on this. Mm. And I do know that, that case histories show that these children can come off the ketogenic diet, be weaned off it, and in fact be normal without the drugs and the ketogenic diet. So there has been some kind of deprogramming of that epileptic state, yeah, uh, which is marvelous news, obviously, for the parents and the child and the caregivers and everybody. Um, and I, but I don't think anyone understands really how or why that happens. Yeah, so interesting. Um, and you mentioned ketone role in the brain as sort of. Um, helping with the development of the myelin sheath and the sort of protection of the neurons, does that then make it a that that would make it a therapeutic diet for something like um, multiple sclerosis or conditions where you get that breakdown too, right? Like that just logically to me thinks, well, gosh, that's got to be protective 
in that sense too. Well, I'm a contributor to a book that's just come out, uh, edited by Susan Messino and, and, and some of her colleagues. And I think there's a chapter in there on, on, on multiple sclerosis, but honestly, I haven't uh, really gone through it in enough detail. But it, it, it makes sense. Mm. Um, it, one would think that if you can protect the myelin uh, during development, then hopefully you could rebuild it uh, later in life in a disease like uh, multiple sclerosis. We've published evidence in uh, the early stage of Alzheimer's disease that you get changes in the white matter that seem to be consistent with rebuilding the myelin. We can't prove the myelin's actually been changed, Mm -hmm. but the ability of people to process information goes up. The speed at which they can process information and information processing in the brain is usually a function of the integrity of the white matter and the and the myelin. Mm. So it's a bit of a leap, but not too too much of a leap to say that we've probably improved the myelin in 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 their situation. Yeah, so interesting, Stephen. With regards to the brain and and aging, and obviously you've done a lot of research in the um, disease brain or the aging brain. Um, what are the changes to the brain over time for us as we age? Like just someone that might not necessarily have Alzheimer's or or um, cognitive impairment um, at that sort of disease level. Like what are some things that we need to think about in order to keep our brain as healthy as we can as we age? Well, that's those are two different questions. Yeah, are. Uh, there are certain things that change. Um, I'm not sure that we can change the rate at which those things change. I don't know. Nobody knows for sure that one thing is the brain shrinks. Yeah. It shrinks by about 20 some percent when you're 65 compared to 30, roughly speaking. Mm. And, and even more than that, as you get older, but still people at at 80 and 90 years old can be cognitively totally intact, even though they've got statistically, they've got 30% less brain than they had when they were 25 years old. The ventricles get bigger as well which means that the dead space, if you will, the ventricles, I'm sure, are doing an important job for the brain, but they show that the amount of cellular material in the brain is is shrinking. So um, the rate at which that happens is probably something you can control by lifestyle in particular. Yeah. Uh, A little bit of physical activity, a, a decent social environment, if possible. Uh, and and a reasonable food supply. We can debate what 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 those things, uh, what what constitutes those components. But uh, ultimately, I think whether you can shift the curve of your brain shrinking to the right, as we would say, delay the shrinkage. Uh, potentially, um, people are trying to use the hippocampus as as a marker. This sort sort of the seat of memory, as a marker of your risk of memory decline. Exercise seems to help the the hippocampus maintain its volume or even increase a bit. I don't think that's true for the brain as a whole. But again, those what's called a longitudinal study, you've got to repeat the measurements on somebody over 10 years. It's it's a long study. It takes a lot of money, takes a lot of participants, and, and to my knowledge, there's not been much done over a time frame that would give us convincing evidence that certain intervention has, has really delayed brain atrophy. But that's that's the main thing that changes with aging. We accumulate a little bit more garbage in the brain, a bit more free radical damage. Um, again, you know, the beta amyloid is the marker of, of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the problem is that people can have totally normal cognition in their 80s and still have a fair amount of amyloid. They can get Alzheimer's disease with very little amyloid. 
So it's not a bad marker, but it's not a, a great marker. It's like cholesterol and heart disease. 50% of people die, dying with a heart attack have normal cholesterol levels, yeah. roughly. I think that's the number. So how good is cholesterol as a marker of your heart disease risk? How good is amyloid a marker of your Alzheimer's disease risk? Even if everyone could, could have a free test of amyloid, it wouldn't tell us who's going to get Alzheimer's disease, even though that's what the drugs have all been focused on uh, unsuccessfully so far for Alzheimer's. So I, I think you should, in a sense, forget about those, um, forget about Alzheimer's disease yeah. and focus on keeping yourself healthy in a general sense, because what's good for the brain is, is good for the rest of the body and vice versa. Yeah. The exercise, the social environment, a bit of cognitive stimulation, um, and, and limiting your carbohydrate. Because ultimately, this, this story about ketones and carbohydrate restriction, it's about insulin. Yeah. Keeping insulin happy. Keeping insulin functional. Too much insulin is, is a problem for the rest of the body, but it's a problem for the brain as well. It, it delays the ability of the brain to clear the garbage out of the brain. And so insulin is, is a key factor, and the balance between the fats and the carbohydrates in our diet is a major factor, plus the activity level, for the level of insulin that creeps up with age. Yeah, That's something we can measure a lot easier than we can brain atrophy or brain cell number. Um, it's very, and fasting glucose is, is a good measure of your risk of getting, di uh, of getting uh, Alzheimer's disease mm. and diabetes, of course. Do you, do you think that, because I often, um, uh, people get like their, HB, their A1C done and their fasting glucose and sometimes they look a little different, but also I wonder how useful it might be to actually get fasting insulin done as well, because of course something is keeping gl your glucose. I'm, your I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not a diabetologist, and so I have a little bit of experience with insulin, but uh, I don't know. I think the gold standard is, is called an oral glucose tolerance test. Um, it takes a little longer to do, but you can do it at home. In fact, if you're really serious about it, you can take 75 grams of glucose uh, in, in, in water, and you can use a finger prick device every 15 to 30 minutes and look over two hours. And, and the, those curves have been done thousands of times. Uh, all the diabetes associations worldwide have got figures on their websites showing what that curve should look like if you're not diabetic, if you're pre-diabetic, and if you are type 2. Um, so, and it's reversible. The point is, it's reversible without drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've got you to be disciplined about it. It's like stopping smoking. You can't sort of have two cigarettes a day and say, well, I've, I've dropped it by 80%. Or stopping drinking alcohol if, if you're an alcoholic and it's, it's all or nothing. I guess that that's not a good comparison because the problem with food is it's not all or nothing. You, you still need to eat and you've got to make the right choices. Yeah. Stephen, can we talk about the – so you mentioned the role of too much insulin in the brain causing or leading to cognitive impairment – as we as we age, I suppose, and contributing to contributing, contributing to. to yes, I'm sorry, contributing to yeah, that's a much better way to put it. What is the role of that? Our ability to use glucose as a fuel source in the brain. So is that all sort of tied in together? So we're unable to utilize glucose to the same extent to fuel the brain. That's correct. Type two diabetics have, are basically in in double jeopardy. Mm. The first problem is that. The insulin uh, the resistance, the inability to uh, get glucose into the cells, 
is one problem, and that's affecting the brain as well. So that's the first part of the double jeopardy. But the, the, the second part is that that high insulin level is suppressing the, the body's ability to generate ketones. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because those ketones are coming from fatty acids in the fat stores, and insulin inhibits fatty acid mobilization from fat. So you make fewer ketones. So you're, you're not able to make the alternative fuel to replace the glucose that's not getting into the brain. So double jeopardy in that sense. So again, it comes back to insulin. You can take more ketones. Uh, there are supplements now that they've been around for a few years, as you know. But ultimately, um, I don't think a ketogenic supplement is going to overcome the problems of insulin excess. So the way to do that is to reduce your carbs, yeah. do a little more exercise. Uh, you don't have to go on a ketogenic diet. Reducing your carbs by 50% will probably take care of most people's insulin resistance. Some people will be tougher nuts to crack than others. But uh, in most cases, it's going to get a, a lot of people uh, under much better insulin control, 50% reduction. You know, you don't have to forego some of the sweets you like. You just have to reduce them and be much more controlled about it. Yeah. Um, so it's much more manageable, I think. Yeah. And Stephen, can we talk about your research looking at medium chain triglycerides in the brain and what you've found there with regards to uh, that sort of mild cognitive impairment or or Alzheimer's. What do we know? Well, we started working with medium chain triglycerides in uh, 2015 uh, with a, with funding from the Alzheimer's Association of, of the United States to look at the early stage of Alzheimer's disease called mild cognitive impairment. Mm. The motivation for the MCT was it's in, in mother's milk, and that's how infants make the ketones. So I thought that's a great source. It's not too expensive. It's it's got a good safety profile. It doesn't. It's not regulated by the um, the um, government agencies that regulate drugs. So we've got something that we can use. We could make a placebo fairly easily. And I was uh, frankly in 2015 still a bit nervous about using a ketogenic diet in in 70 year old individuals. I was. I didn't have the confidence. There were no data in that age group. So I was worried that the ethics committee would not permit it. It's turned out to be relatively safe, uh, and it's actually a very nice study from New Zealand uh, with Matthew Phillips, who, if you haven't interviewed him, you should certainly have a chat with him about keto um, for uh, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we started with MCT. It seemed less sort of invasive, and we were doing a lot of imaging in these individuals, a lot of cognitive testing, and we wanted to give them something fairly simple as well as as opposed to trying to change their diet as well as everything else. So we started with that. We developed a, a drink in skim milk that was reasonably well tolerated. We got the funding to do a six-month trial, and we got into it, and we finished that trial in 2019 and showed that all the areas, uh, the main cognitive domain, so uh, memory, executive function, attention, language, and processing speed all improved in relation to the ketones in the blood or in the brain, because we had the brain ketone uh, measurements. We'd actually developed that technique uh, a few years before, and it helped us understand that the ketones were critical to the cognitive improvements that we were seeing in a dose-related relationship. Yeah. So the more ketones, the more improvement was seen in the individual. That's right. And we didn't know that when we started. We didn't know how much to give of this MCT. So we gave a dose that we thought would be moderately well tolerated. And we crossed our fingers that, in fact, it was going to have a benefit. Um, because an earlier trial giving 20 grams a day 
we gave 30 grams. An earlier trial giving 20 grams a day had a very marginal effect on, on cognition, which is so close to the non-existent that it was it, it was not very convincing, shall we say. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't our work, but it suggested that dose was an issue. And we said, well, let's give them 30 and let's hope that people tolerate it reasonably well. 80% of people that started finished this, the study um, and were compliant with the dose uh, regimen that we gave them. So it was it was quite successful from that perspective. Yeah. Was it over one dose or was it a split dose? Two doses per day. So 30 grams split in two to 15 grams in the morning at, at breakfast and 15 grams uh, at supper. Yeah. Okay. And the and with regards to their diet, so their diet just stayed the same. They were just told just eat as per normal, just add in these or were they given diet advice or what was the, yeah. No diet advice at all. We I, like, like I said, we were worried about overloading them with too much information and, and having them sort of bail out and, and no longer able to, to cope. None of them gained weight, despite the fact that they're taking a supplement that's supplying 300 calories uh, a day. So that suggests they were probably modifying something about their, their food intake that would compensate for that somewhere. But we don't know exactly what, what might have changed. So these were people at the, in the early stages of Alzheimer's that were given the uh, MCT. Was it a powder or an oil? And is there a difference? It was, it was a milkshake, basically, that we prepared and they took home a, a month's supply. So a one-day one day dose was, was eight ounces or 250 mils in a, in a small, in a bottle. So they took half of that at breakfast and half of it at lunch. So they had about 30 of these bottles per month, and they came back every month to get a new month's supply. It was tested for microbiology and, and, and bacterial uh, contamination and all that sort of stuff. So it was a, it was a good quality product that we had made uh, every couple of months. Um, and um, it was based on skim milk, lactose-free skim milk, which is a good way to make a, a sort of a milkshake. Um, for people who don't drink milk, it, it, it was perhaps not the, the best thing, but it was a neutral flavor. It wasn't um, lactose free is uh, is a little sweeter because the lactose is, is is converted to glucose. In fact, so there's a few percentage of glucose that make it a little sweeter, perhaps, and a little more pleasant to uh, to take. Yeah. So, um, because I've I've got MCT powder and I put it in my coffee, and is there a difference to the quality or the amount of MCTs in oil versus powder? Do you know or well? The powder wasn't available when we started for starters. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have done very little work with the powder, but um, if if so, if the packaging says that you 20 grams of the powder, it's not going to be 20 grams of oil because there's a the powder has got a dry material that coats the oil of droplets. Course. Yes, yes. So uh, the powdered stuff will probably be 50% MCT oil or maybe less. I'm not sure what the proportion is. Yeah. Um, so the powder is not all oil. But it's it's easier to put into coffee or something else than the oil is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, these are the these you know you, these are the trade offs that uh, how how do you make this stuff accessible and and tolerable? We put it into a drink, but then you wouldn't put our drink into your coffee necessarily, or or you could. And uh, so Stephen, so you have got the you get improvements in cognitive function when you've got that increase in ketones. Um, for people with Alzheimer's, is the utility in people who don't have mild cognitive impairment or aren't in that sort of early stages of Alzheimer's for sort of doing 
having a similar approach sort of as we age, like focusing more on trying to increase ketones if it's via using more MCTs such as you've described or exercising or intermittent fasting. So would they be sort of prevention? Prevention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conceptually, it, it makes sense. Whichever strategy of, of the of the several that you just mentioned, the fact is, I don't. There's very little, very few studies that have been done. Exercise, I think, is is an accepted intervention to slow down cognitive aging. Um, the data are not fabulously convincing, but I think they make sense, and they make sense because there is some cognitive improvement in some of the studies, and because it helps control insulin. Mm. Uh, MCT is a simple strategy. Um, if you're not going to go on a, on, on a reduced carb diet, if you're not going to start uh, intermittent fasting or some kind of calorie restriction, then there are these are, are your options. You can buy the salts. You can if you have a, a deeper pockets, you can buy the esters and and, and so on. So uh, I'm not sure they're all absolutely equivalent because the body's metabolism changes on a ketogenic diet. Does it really change that much if you take a ketone salt? Mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, You're putting all your money on the ketones delivering the biological effect if you're taking the ketone supplement. If you're taking a ketogenic diet, there's a lot of other changes in the body that are going on at the same time. Um, will the ketone salt improve insulin sensitivity? I don't think it'll do a lot for insulin sensitivity, whereas the ketogenic diet will help it a lot. Yeah, good point. So... Um, Different strokes for different folks, and and the the like exercise. Some people will swim, some people won't. Some people will walk, some people will run. Um, some people will play badminton or, or whatever it is. And so, each person's got to develop their own strategy. The idea is that you do something that that you can do sustainably, uh, and you can look forward to doing, and you can have fun doing. If you start weightlifting and hate it, then what's the point? Um, so it's something you it's 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 a conscious change it takes a certain amount of discipline and and if you do it with other people there's going to be a, the pleasure factor should should come into play and the encouragement from others if it's raining out there and you're supposed to be going for a run anyway well or snowing uh, here perhaps uh, well some of you will kind of insist come on you got to come anyway and, and and that sort of encouragement is great on a social level uh, and so on so um it's being practical, but but being disciplined at the same time. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And with regards to the uh, fasting side of things, so fasting will increase your ketone production. Has there been research looking at cognitive impairment and fasting and, and any sort of improvements there? Um, you know, in, in humans, I think not, not um, basically. How, how long... A fast are we talking about? What proportion of calorie restriction is it? Is it, is it a total fast for 24, 48 hours, or even a week? I mean, very few people are going to do that. And part of the problem is that if you're healthy and, you know, the, 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 there's a greater likelihood you're going to participate in a study like that if you're young and healthy yeah. or perhaps middle-aged, but still healthy. Um, 70, again, 70 of somebody of 70 years old uh, is less likely to be interested in, in fasting. And, 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 even if they are, what what do you do to end the fast? What what happens when the fast ends? Mm. So if that's your thing, uh, I, I've got no I got no problems with that. I don't think there's a safety issue, uh, and you might find that it it makes you much brighter and much more functional for for some reasons. But I, I don't think it's going to be a widely applicable strategy. Mm. Uh, but again, it depends on each person is different and. 
you can be healthy on different diets and you can be healthy on different uh, exercise regimens and you can be healthy on different fasting regimens as well, or caloric restriction ones. So you've got to find what works for you. Yeah, I often hear people talk about cognitive clarity when they're, um, if they intermittent fast um, or by that, or time restrict their food, I'm sorry. And so they're like, you know, having their first meal at 12 as opposed to, Eight, they say that they think much more clearly through the morning when when that's the case, and and that's often um, uh, attributed to that increased ketones. Well, it's a good point. I mean, uh, it, it is possible to uh, delay breakfast, uh, especially if you have a, a keto coffee of some sort, um, and I think it has an appetite suppressing effect, and so um, it, it you might be able to extend your fast effectively. Um, whether you're boosting, you know, supporting it with exogenous ketones or MCT or, or some other approach. So there are ways to, to sort of disguise it instead of saying today's the day of the week that I, I go without food entirely. I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be able to, to do that for very long. Um, some people do it. Yeah, It's a sort of two on five off or something like that, where they two days of the, of the week they fast. Yeah. They just don't eat. Okay. Well, I, but I, I wouldn't get very far with that. <laughs> no, neither neither would I, actually. It's interesting because I've spoken to um, Professor Don Lehman and Professor Stu Phillips, and particularly Don Lehman's very – he's not a fan of fasting just because of the potential for muscle mass um, loss and bone loss, you know, when you go for the extended periods without um, without food. So, yeah. So, and, and they're probably runners. I think Stu Phillips, uh, uh, an exercise physiologist, uh, yeah, yeah, um, or, or probably a runner as well. So yeah, and it, it makes sense. Mm. You've got to rebuild the muscle that you're using while you're out running, and and so um, again, maybe maybe some kind of a health coach makes sense under these circumstances. Don't just go off and, and start trying to do this by yourself. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so what about exercise for Alzheimer's? Has there been research looking at um, the importance of that? Yes. Um, we did a little study. I'm not saying it's the best or the most important, but what was interesting about ours is that it showed that the brain is, is taking up more ketones uh, when, the, when, when someone with Alzheimer's disease does exercise. So it if you have a, an MCT supplement or a ketone salt supplement or a keto diet or fasting, whatever strategy you have, plus exercise, you're actually getting more of the ketones that are in the blood that can, can get into the brain. So they can help compensate for that brain energy gap, that, that declining utilization of glucose as we get older, better than either strategy alone. So interesting. And, you know, we're talking about a brain in a disease state. and But of course, everything you're sort of Talking it like it's almost like if that works in a disease state, then that's going to be fairly good for people with a healthy brain. You can just imagine that that's just, you know, the best sort of prevention strategies for a healthy brain. Yeah. Um, that we should all sort of be having a think about our own yep. habits uh, and behaviors. And, and some amount of exercise is usually got, got some pleasure associated with it afterwards. Uh, brain derived ner nerve growth factor, uh, brain derived neuro. And BDNF yeah. um, is also increased. And there's so, uh, you know, I think there, there is a pleasure associated with exercise uh, that, that we, we, we should be looking for that pleasure in, in life. And, and eating better is often associated with pleasure as well. 
uh, and socializing is usually associated with pleasure. So the, the, the pleasure factor should be part of it as opposed to this obligation. Yeah. I got to do this. Yeah. I hate it, but I got to do it. I don't think there's going to be any long-term utility to, to that type of approach. No. Um, so again, forget about Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, yeah. Think about the prevention and the, and the sort think of about, healthy aging. I want to be healthy, as yeah. healthy as I can. Even if you're 75 years old and you know you've got memory loss, you can still slow that process down. Do we know if MCTs help um, rescue brain energy if you suffer from brain fog or you're noticing that you're not remembering things quite as well as you used to, like, but you might be, you know, in your mid forties, like me, like, is there utility in using MCT in that instance? Post-COVID. Yes. I've talked to a couple of people about doing a study on this and, and we haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. Um, so the answer is, I don't know if it helps people with, with brain fog, whatever the form that they have it could be a virus other than than COVID. It could be uh, other things. It could be an, you know a general anesthesia for a hip replacement is is associated with a brain fog and even more severe cognitive dysfunction than that. Um, so uh, there are you know general anesthetic in, in your in your sixties is is a ticket to getting uh, significant cognitive problems. Unfortunately, so it, it's a horrible choice to say you know do I live with my hip the way it is. Or do I take a chance that it's going to impact on my brain function? Um, we, we're, someone is going to get around to doing this, this sort of work, and, and, and we'll, we'll see some data emerge in the near future. But one of the challenges is that the ketone salts that are available, the ketone esters, even the MCT, there's no placebo for them. And we developed a placebo for our study, and I'm not going to be doing the same product with milk anymore as I did uh, in the past. But if you're going to study people with brain fog, it's a very subjective state. Yeah. You as the person who suffers it and the person who's, who's um, testing you. So both of you have got to be unaware of the treatment you're on in order to objectively assess the degree of problem and potentially the degree of improvement during the intervention. So a placebo is, is, an, is a, an essential component to such a study. And at the moment, those products aren't out there. So to do a definitive study um, is, still gonna, is still not possible. Yeah. However, I suppose it's, uh, that shouldn't necessarily stop anyone from trying it to see how they feel if they, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that's one thing. And, and a pilot study that in 10 people that says, you know, we've got this degree of improvement, even if it's not a controlled study, mm. is better than nothing. And it helps potentially generate interest. Um, these aren't drugs that we're talking about. So it's hard to get the investment that's necessary, either from government or from, from companies, because it's hard for them to protect their investment. Uh, and, and to, and to so, you know, to invest in a placebo is a waste of money in some respects, because you can't sell it to anybody. You yeah. can only use it for research. Um, so the, that's that's the state of the art. That's where we are. But uh, things are going a lot better than they were uh, even five years ago uh, in terms of the interest, the types of products are available, and people can test it for themselves. It, there's essentially zero risk yeah. uh, with most of these, I think, with all of these products. Yeah. And, Stephen, you mentioned, um, you know, post-COVID brain fatigue. Again, You've got nothing to lose from trying it to see whether it's going to help with your... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Such a good point, of course, because... And I think statistically, the people that have the worst long COVID and, and or extended 
uh, effects of COVID are those that have metabolic syndrome. Yes. Uh, that are overweight, type 2 diabetics, insulin resistant. That, that syndrome is associated with a lesser capacity to cope with that type of viral infection. Yeah. So uh, added to their woes, if we can get those people to start changing their diets and improving their insulin, it's probably going to have an impact on the long COVID symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, that's, that's pure speculation, but yep. I think it's going to help people resist COVID and probably recover from it. Yeah. Again, speculation, but it's worth trying. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, Stephen, just a couple of more questions. Um, has your research changed your own behavior and in, in the way you think about how you do things as you age? Uh, I think so. Um, I'm I'm conscious of insulin. I'm, I think my insulin's pretty happy, um, and so um, I I do a little bit of supplementing and. Um, I try different things because I'm sometimes involved in my own research projects, uh, so I'm not on any long long term treatment. But I'm I'm calorie restricting a little bit more than I was. Um, I haven't intentionally lost weight over the past uh, 25 years, but I but I have lost weight, um, and so it's probably because I've reduced um, the dessert type foods uh, in my diet over the past 25 to maybe 30 years. Um, gradually. And so I, I think I'm doing a few things right. And um, we'll see, you know, how whether it's going to pay off. But um, I feel relatively healthy. I'm fairly physically active. But um, in the garden, I'm not out on a bike as much as I used to be, but I'm doing a lot of stuff in the garden with a pick and shovel. And yeah. so that's fairly demanding work that keeps the muscles ticking. And it's functioning. And sleep is, you know, Sleep is, uh, we didn't talk about it, but it's, no. it's a, an important complement to uh, these other sort of health lifestyle strategies that we talk about. And if people have sleep disorders, uh, it's something that I would put near the top of the list to, to, to work hard at, at trying to correct, whether it's stress relief, anxiety, depression. Uh, I, I, you know, it could be various reasons why people have sleep disorders, but um, it's going to have an impact on their cognitive aging. It does impact on uh, the body's ability to sort of handle glucose and the insulin response doesn't it i i guess so i mm. don't know that literature but if that if if you say so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um and uh Stephen, finally what research is your lab doing that we can look forward to sort of seeing published over the next couple of years well, I guess I'll give you a snapshot of three things very briefly one is that um, the mct i think did a good job in a study we call Benefic, but uh, we've gone on with a ketone salt, which is giving a bit more uh, ketone bang for the buck. Um, so I'm hoping that we're going to see um, a nice effect there. Um, we've uh, realized that the, the heart uses ketones very effectively, and we're wondering about whether the heart uh, problems of heart uh, insufficiency um, and heart failure might, in fact, help be respond to a, a better source of energy. So we're, we're probing that and using uh, PET imaging to uh, ketone PET imaging to to look into that. And you know, a lot of our older people end up in nursing homes uh, where food quality is not necessarily the best. Where a lot of carbohydrate because it's less expensive. So pasta, rice, potatoes, and um, we're trying to start with doing a feasibility trial right now to reduce carbohydrate by fifty percent in a nursing home. Um, how do you do that? 
the kitchen's got to prepare two sets of meals because not everybody's going to be on on the treatment. You know, they have to they can choose to be on it or not to be on it. It's it's a research project, so it's voluntary. So uh, how do we supply those meals? We've done it with a caterer for a week. We've got glucose monitoring on a patch, and we're going to be analyzing those results in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, it's not easy to do. So, uh, but I think it's important that we try to reduce carbohydrate in nursing homes um, in some way. Uh, it's not going to be economical for some of them. So, how do you support the directors, the owners of these homes to to do this sort of thing? Um, but that's one. It's on our on our to do list. Stephen, you are basically just challenging so many societal issues with your research. Like you just mentioned like the role of ketones in the heart, because I've heard um, someone else talk about that, you know, that that they could potentially be a fuel supply. So essentially a ketogenic diet could save someone from heart disease, not necessarily give them heart disease. Um, well, we, 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 we don't we, know. We've already seen results out yeah. of a Danish group with, a, with an infusion of ketones so directly into the blood um, and improving heart function in, in heart failure patients. Um, so... Uh, that's a proof of principle that it can be done. We'll have to see how whether we can do it with dietary approach, but I, I think it, it, we could make some progress in that direction. That sounds so exciting. And that nursing home study, gosh, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Like if I think about how, because my mother used to um, work in a rest home when I was younger and it was just desserts like all the time, sugar, morning tea, afternoon tea, after dinner, yeah. the whole shebang. Well, I, I, I think we can do better than that, but it's a question of making it uh, economically possible um, and uh, changing some ideas about the risk associated with reducing carbohydrate, which uh, I think are, are slowly, the resistance is slowly going away. The diabetes associations uh, are, are starting to adapt, adopt this uh, approach. So I, I think we're breaking down some of those barriers. And uh, 10 years ago, I would not have been optimistic about doing any of this. So a lot has happened in 10 years. Yeah. Well, it's super exciting, Stephen. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the publications come out over the next couple of years and just seeing how that progresses and potentially um, seeing you chat about it in an in-person conference at some point over the next few years. That'd be amazing. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for your time uh, this morning, when can people? Where can people find out more? Just in terms of the research and in your lab, like where's the best place for people? Who well, are we interested? have a website. I could send you the address if I, if you want to post it somewhere. But um, we can. There's a web address um, where they could contact us and see what's going on. Um, obviously, if they're living any any distance from our place they can't participate in the projects but they can they can see what's going on for sure yeah no that sounds great and i will put links in the show notes to your um research gate um which was like a wealth of information of all your sort of current and former projects um thanks Stephen, so much really appreciate right. your time it's been a pleasure thanks very much for contacting me uh, mickey Alrighty, hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and you have a better appreciation for just how important ketones are for the brain, that glucose isn't the only fuel source and potentially as we age shouldn't be the thing that we really need to worry as much about compared to some of the other things that we discussed today. 
Next week on the podcast, I had the opportunity to speak to Dr. Heather Massey all about the importance of cold water therapy for mood and well-being. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or, as mentioned earlier, over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can also book a one-on-one consult with me or sign up to any number of my meal plans. So until next week, team, see you later.